Welcome back to another episode of the DD Geopolitics Podcast. I'm Sarah, joined again by Lydia and JM and our frequent and favorite guest, Pepe Escobar from the Far East. How are you, Pepe? Hey, hi. No, no. Come on. I'm a 10-minute walk from the FSB. Don't I'm tell here. them that. Don't tell them <laughs> So I'm not in a, I, wa- I was in the heartland last week. And I arrived on the weekend, and I've been in Moscow since Sunday. It's been absolutely hectic. I well, I barely slept with the whole Prigozhin saga. This morning, I was writing my column, which should be out on Sputnik in the next few hours. Sputnik International, and there's another one coming on Cradle tonight. So these these two columns basically spell out everything that happened uh, at the BRICS summit in Johannesburg. Uh, they, you can read them as a sort of a introduction, as a sort of a primer, as a sort of a greatest hits. And, <laughs> yeah, what, whatever. But uh, I think the most important thing is the, the strategic game-changing aspect of it all, which is something really mind-boggling. I was... I was um, I was looking at the map this morning, and uh, it, it's, it is mind-boggling. The BRICS 11, as I call them, uh, which in itself was a, a, a diplomatic coup de force, because uh, uh, we happened to get some inside information of what really went on on that fateful table over there. And uh, I, I'm sure many of you will remember that Putin, in one of his speeches, said that uh, the negotiations were very, very difficult, and they were. And the Russians were the middleman, essentially, and the middleman between what? India and China, once again. So it was very complicated. But in the end, everybody, uh, they got what they wanted, in fact. And it, it was a diplomatic coup de force in terms of. Uh, India, from the beginning, they only they wanted only three new members. China wanted 10. So the Russians as middlemen said, oh, shit, what are you going to do? So in the end, they settled for six because they were listening to South Africa. And uh, they said, look, Algeria sooner or later is going to be part of it anyway. Let's, uh, let's go further east and introduce Ethiopia because Ethiopia is in a very, very, very tricky region, Northeast Africa, is also relatively close to West Asia. And then there's the whole Red Sea, Horn of Africa element as well. So, and very, very strong in metals uh, and minerals as well, um, resources. So uh, South Africa was lobbying for uh, Ethiopia at, um, at the last minute. Brazil, of course, had already voted for Argentina. Uh, supported by China, of course, because China is uh, one. Of, Argentina is one of China's main uh, provider of uh, essential commodities, and Brazil, of course, because Brazil, uh, Brazil under Lula or Lula himself is terrified at the prospect of having an absolutely idiot, Atlanticist idiot, comprador elite idiot, becoming the next president and dollarizing the Argentinian economy. So Brazil is trying to help Fernandes by bringing 
Argentina into BRICS. And of course, China, uh, the, the, I, I would say the spectacular trifecta was China. Because from the beginning, we knew what they wanted because this was in concert with Russia. They wanted the major oil and gas producers. And they got them. And of course, they didn't even have to convince the others about it. Iran, Saudi Arabia, and the United Arab Emirates. So when you look at the BRICS 11 as it stands, and how much they control in terms of uh, oil reserves and global oil production, global oil production is almost 50%. It's huge. It's enormous. Plus, this articulation now which is now explicit between BRICS 11 and OPEC plus. OPEC plus, as you all know, is basically run by Moscow and Riyadh. It's a Russia-Saudi Arabia operation. Uh, putting an MBS pick up the phone, you know, <laughs> exchange pleasantries. I say, okay, how, how much are you going to cut next week? You know, that kind of stuff. So, so it's great. And the fact that they are now part of BRICS 11, it's, this is a mega game changer in itself. So, so in terms of uh, not revolutionizing, but reconfiguring a great deal of the global supply chains, uh, commodities markets, and of course, oil and, and gas producing nations, this is absolutely enormous. This, this is the, the big thing of uh, what happened in Johannesburg. And uh, don't forget that uh, BRICS Plus is just the beginning. Soon it's going to become BRICS 15, BRICS 20, and in a few years could become BRICS 40. Uh, the South Africans said, look, this is just the first batch. There'll be more. And the next batch of full members is going to be in Russia, in Kazan, in October next year, in the, in the 16th BRICS summit, BRICS 11 summit. Let's put it this way. And the great thing is that BRICS 11 starts at some I, I call it a form of poetic justice, in fact, geopolitical poetic justice. 1st of January 2024, that's the start of the Russian presidency of BRICS. And BRICS 11 starts on the same day. So this was beautiful. I'm sure there was a, a Chinese philosophical, metaphysical, civilizational input into all this. And the Russians obviously loved it. So, so this is this is the basic uh, the basic traits of what happened in, in Johannesburg. Um, in, in terms of uh, the accomplishment of uh, coordinated Russia-China diplomatic efforts, their symbiosis, the fact that they are in sync uh, geopolitically, geoeconomically, uh, diplomatically, and this is at the highest level, at the level of Lavrov Wang Yi, at the level of Xi and Putin themselves. This is amazing. Uh, it, it's uh, it started long ago, but the first milestone was, of course, Beijing announcing the rapprochement between Tehran and Riyadh in Beijing, which is something that the Russians had initiated. First, the Russians talked to the Iranians, then they talked to the Saudis, then they put both together in the same table, then they threw the ball to the other side of the net. Uh, the Chinese picked it up and home run, absolute home run, right? So the second stage is now, which is this incorporation of OPEC plus inside BRICS, in BRICS 11, and the fact that we now have the BRICS controlling, among other connectivity corridors, the Northern Sea route, uh, all the corridors inside 
the Belt and Road Initiative brie across Eurasia, the overland corridors. The International North-South Transportation Corridor, which is Russia, Iran, India, the main actors. Um, uh, 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 the Maritime Silk Roads, which is the Chinese Maritime Silk Roads, but also Persian Gulf, Red Sea, and Suez Canal. So they are controlling overland corridors and maritime corridors as well. Um, what, what are the Americans going to do? Are they going to bomb Riyadh? Are they going to bomb Dubai? Are they going to sanction uh, Dubai or Riyadh? This is ridiculous. And of course, the key question, which was de-dollarization, the Russians were wily enough to basically uh, postpone it in a sense because they knew that uh, it would be impossible for them to announce a BRICS currency now. First of all, because they are, they are mega, mega baby steps at the, at the moment towards uh, uh, the pres President Lula of Brazil, in one of his speeches, he said, no, we need to set up a working group to start uh, working on uh, the path towards uh, a BRICS currency. But this is a long way away. What they knew they had to focus on, and they are focusing on, is increasing a trade in national currencies, bilateral trade and intra-BRICS-11 trade starting next year. So then we can have situations like the, the Brazilians and the Iranians uh, trading and payments going to be, for instance, in yuan. Why not? It's much better than for uh, any of both sides to accumulate Brazilian real or Iranian reals, which are unconvertible, essentially. So they do everything in yuan, for instance. Perfect. Um, uh, they'll be trading dirham as well, of course. Uh, and the fact that uh, uh, since they have already started increasing a trade in a bilater bilateral trade in national currencies, the question of loans, and that's where the NDB comes in. The, and that's a very, very complicated question. Um, and in the middle of one of my columns, uh, I, I mentioned that uh, Dilma, Dilma Rousseff, the former Brazilian president, she sent a report to the, the South African chair of the summit this week uh, detailing the situation with the NDB. Uh, Ramaphosa, in fact, uh, thanked uh, Dilma uh, explicitly in public about that, but he didn't get into the details. And the details are very, very tricky. And the guy who best answered this question, and I included that in one of my columns as well, is Sergei Glazia, the Minister of Macroeconomics for the Eurasia Economic Union uh, at the Eurasia Economic Commission, which works for the Eurasia Economic Union. Glazia said, look, the problem is when they were setting up this bank in Shanghai, all five BRICS uh, members are shareholders, right? Glaziev told the Russians and told other nations that, look, the, the statutes for this, uh, for this bank, we cannot do everything linked to the U.S. dollar. Nobody paid attention. And that's the problem. Because most of the loans by the NDB are in U.S. dollars. Dilma herself said many times, and she repeated in uh, South Africa, look, our aim is to get to 30% of our loans distributed in, um, uh, in other currencies apart from the US dollar. This is ridiculous. This is nothing. 
it should be by 70 or 80 percent by now. So they're still aiming at 30. And Glaziev said, of course not, because the whole setup of the bank is linked to the U.S. dollar. And that explains why the bank now is his own words, semi-paralyzed and terrified of U.S. sanctions. So you're going to have to <laughs> review the role of the NDB and change a lot of stuff inside the NDB so it can become more effective. Uh, obviously, this is so tricky, so sensitive that nobody mentioned that. Uh, it's not mentioned in the final declaration. And in public, they, bus they basically uh, talked about the NDB, but they didn't get into the details. So um, I wonder, this is something, if I have the chance to ask Dilma herself before the end of the year in Shanghai about that, uh, I don't think she'll be able to answer because, uh, pr first of all, they are not allowed to talk to foreign uh, journalists or analysts. Uh, the rules of the bank are very, very strict, you know. But maybe uh, it will be possible for some of us to to find out uh, um, indirectly from Dilma via some of the Sherpas, what is the real situation inside the NDB? So Glaziev said that it's, it's very, very tricky. So if they don't solve that, we cannot see BRICS evolving uh, uh, short term and even midterm as a very important alternative financing mechanism. So guys, this is basically the the, the basically the basics of what happens, right? If you have any questions, uh, shoot. I do. I want to know who are your most favorite or just the one that you're the happiest about joining BRICS of the new additions. Yes. Uh, the favorites. Your favorite. Uh, yeah, I have a my favorite. Fa my favorite uh, is Iran. I'm Iran is my favorite. I'm sorry. Oh, but uh, if uh, from uh, uh, exactly, I, I love the question because from from a, an emotional point of view, and considering the fact that, uh, of course, I've been a a, 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 a an avid fan and admirer of Persia since I was in high school, and then later in my professional life, I went to Iran many times. And I even have uh, something that I want to make free for everyone soon. Uh, I collected most of my reportage in Iran for 20 years in an e-book. The problem is this was published by the former ga American gangsters in Hong Kong I was associated with. So, of course, from my emotional and professional point of view, I, I love that Iran. I, I was sure that Iran was going to be uh, introduced because of the strategic relationship between Iran and uh, China, which already exists, and the strategic relationship between Iran and Russia, which is already on. And the fact that for them, the fact that Iran this year now is an official member of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, it makes total sense to have Iran as a full member of BRICS as well. But from the point of view of uh, strategic thinking, and overall strategy for this BRICS expansion, the, the absolute genius coup was to have Iran, Saudi Arabia, and uh, the Emirates at the same time. Because this turned the energy markets worldwide upside down. And we can say, uh, okay, I would even venture to say that this is the prelude Okay, and now it's a prelude that is um, <laughs> heavy with foreboding 
of uh, finally burning the petrodollar. This is going to be probably much faster than any of us ever thought or still think, you know. How about, was? do you think that Ethiopia was a last minute addition? Because, all right, we had a bet. I actually won the bet. Whoever could get the most guesses right for the new editions of BRICS would win. And I won, but nobody picked Ethiopia. And then when I read the news afterwards, it looked, seemed like Ethiopia was kind of surprised that Ethiopia was. They the, were. It was really <laughs> I'm, nice. I'm glad that you put it this way because <laughs> they were. They were. You know that this was really a last minute addition because the South Africans were arguing, look, it's still imbalanced. We only have two representing Africa. Everybody agreed, but they could not agree. Okay, who's going to be the third African nation? Everybody knows that Algeria is very, very important, but uh, it's not essential to have Algeria right now, especially because they have very close relations with Russia and China already. So they said, look, let's try to pick up somebody that uh, uh, the, the, the development potential is enormous in terms of natural resources, in terms of what they already have, huge reserves of gold, uh, platinum, tantalum, niobium and excellent opportunities for exploitation of oil and gas reserves and on top of it ultra strategically located not very far from egypt and not very far from west asia it's perfect if you look at the map it's it's an absolutely brilliant choice and of course there's going to be this umbrella of protection around ethiopia from now on by all the BRICs involved and including doing more business with uh, Ethiopia and investing in Ethiopia. For instance, uh, very few people know that Saudi Arabia and the Emirates, they are heavily investing in mining. So we can see a Saudi Emirati rush to Ethiopia starting next year, you know, en masse. So this, this, this is a brilliant strategic play, no question. And uh, we still don't know who... Apart from South Africa, who I, I'm sure the Chinese and the Russians were behind that, obviously. They, they see very long term, especially the Chinese. But it was a brilliant decision. And Algeria, we can say more or less with certainty, they're going to be part of the next batch. And the next batch, which uh, they, they say that in the beginning of the next year, they're going to start having uh, closer uh, connections with partners. But these are not full members yet. The next batch of full members is going to come next year in Kazan. And then we can have, for instance, very, very strong possibility among them, Algeria, Venezuela, Kazakhstan. So this is what? This is almost 90% of the top producers in oil and, glass and gas on the planet. So then, you know, uh, <laughs> craving the stake in the heart of the vampire petrodollar, you'll be almost a fait accompli, right? <laughs> I think that presents a very uh, upbeat assessment. What are some uh, further positive developments? And I'd like to focus on a um, the neighboring country to the country of your birth. What do you think besides perhaps maybe hopefully possibly staving off a melee win that bringing Argentina into the BRICS will accomplish both for Argentina but also for the world? Uh, I, I like that you pose the question this way, because, uh, look, at my age and what I have seen all over the world, uh, I'm allowing myself some kind of optimism 
based on a, a sort of Taoist reading of the world. You know, I was not like that before. I was more like a Nietzsche nihilist, active nihilist before. But so with age, with experience, with learning, and the fact that if you if you keep the mentality of uh, looking at the world and the world is changed with the mentality of a perpetual student, which is what I basically do, and you can all, always learn a little bit more from different civilizations, from different ways of, of thinking, from the other. Uh, obviously, your outlook changes and you start thinking that, okay, it may be wishful thinking, but uh, there are signs here and there, and these are very real signs of uh, the at least an emerging possibility of uh, organizing the elements of a different world and a different system of international relations. Okay, uh, the, the first reading is, okay, it's too optimistic. Okay, whatever. It's uh, I, I won't digress into a metaphysical analysis of the whole thing. But uh, we we now all of us, different generations, we need to keep this perspective and we need to hope for something different because the way the whole system has been structured, especially after the end of the Second World War, led to what we are living now. We all I don't have to explain to all of you what we are living now, which is uncontrolled chaos in every sphere among the uh, absolute disaster in uh, all the major nodes of Western civilization. So, uh, right, coming back to your question on Argentina, which I'm very fond of. Uh, I used to go to Buenos Aires a lot. I crossed Patagonia from south to north. Uh, across the north, uh, from the north to Bolivia as well. So I'm very fond of Argentina. I have good Argentinian friends. I always followed Argentina very closely, uh, even when I'm not. I was not living uh, <laughs> as a neighbor uh, when I when I was a teenager or whatever. And what could happen in Argentina is beyond tragic, and at the same time, extremely predictable. These are among the most rapacious, arrogant, ignorant, and toxic comprador elites on the planet. And believe me, I've seen a few all over the world in almost 40 years as a foreign correspondent. And obviously, this um, anarcho-clown is the perfect messenger for them. Absolutely perfect. And he fooled large suites of uh, the Argentinian population uh, in, in this first round of voting. Uh, he, he has a strong chance of uh, becoming president still. And uh, what, what he's basically proposing is uh, the same old, same old of uh, Argentinian elites uh, represented by uh, people like the Bullrich family, for instance, the old Argentinian elite, which is absolutely disgusting, even more disgusting than the Brazilian elites. And of course, uh, considering that uh, the Fernandes government is not very strong, uh, internally is not <laughs> even, even worse. Uh, there's corruption everywhere, obviously. And the fact that they, they could never sanitize a country that had been destroyed before by those years of Macri. Um, you know, the whole the whole thing, like when Lula, in fact, looks at Argentina, he's absolutely, uh, he's uh, uh, helpless. 
in fact. So the least he could do to help his very good friend Fernandez, okay, let's try to bring them into BRICS and then let's try to organize a system to say, at least try to save some of their economy. It could be via, via the NDB, could be by persuading the Chinese to make loans with, uh, you know, uh, to be repayable <laughs> to infinity, um, or the Chinese buying more agricultural products from Argentina, whatever. But try to save Argentina from itself and from its worst instincts, which are concentrated in these few families who rule the whole country out of Buenos Aires. And it's always been like that with some intervals, you know. So, um, uh, the possibility that this is going to work, uh, I would say they are slim, but we got to try, right? And from I understand how Lula thought about the whole thing, and I understand how the Chinese understood that as well, because they want to, to, to they don't want Argentina to become a neo colony of the empire with the fully dollarized economy, especially being one of the top uh, export uh, producers of um, uh, export. Um, sources of uh, commodities to china right but uh, it's it's a very tragic and um, and uh, it's a terrible situation uh, over there let let's hope that they'll be able to turn it around just like ecuador seems to be turning around if in the next uh, elections in ecuador we have uh, someone who's very close to rafael correa elected as president and then among other things we could have guess what what did the ecuadorian government really do to snitch and basically uh, get Julia Assange, hand out Julia Assange to the Brits. So, you know, there's always a possibility down there. Just like uh, we all know that the possibility of Assange not, Julia not being extradited to the, to the US is extremely slim. At the last minute, anything might happen, right? Uh, but considering the the stress in your comp cycles in the West, I guess it won't, unfortunately. Okay, one last question before we let you go to bed, and this is for everybody on, up here. Um, who, which country, if you could pick any country in the world to join BRICS uh, today, who would it be? And I'll go first. So I'll obviously pick Syria, and then JM. I would pick Bolivia. Hmm, Lydia. Hmm. I actually haven't thought, thought about it. I'll be honest. I don't know. <laughs> okay, Pepe. I know you have one. I love. I love your options. I love your options. <laughs> Syria, Syria, no, ser seriously. I'm being very, very honest with you guys. Syria and Bolivia are brilliant options. Bolivia. Uh, maybe there's a strong chance next year, and this will involve lobbying from the South Americans, of course. But also China looking at all those lithium reserves, of course. And Syria, there's a huge problem, which, and then there's, that's where India, who is absolutely terrified of American sanctions and secondary sanctions, they look at Syria. No, we cannot have Syria because they are under American sanctions. And then these sanctions are going to, to spread out all over us because we're, we're going to start doing business with Syria. But the thing is, uh, China, Russia, and Iran, basically, among the three of them, they are already involved and they will be even more involved in the reconstruction of Syria. And if they could get, for instance, uh, I wrote about that already. Can you imagine if they could get the NDB to help 
with Syrian reconstruction directly. This would be outstanding. Obviously, it cannot happen at the moment for all those reasons that Sergei Glaziev enumerated. Uh, we talked about it a few minutes ago. But assuming that they, they, they could change the statutes of the NDB, and the NDB can really start disbursing loans in all sorts of currencies without paying attention to what the Americans are going to do, Syria would be a prime candidate. I, I totally validate this. Uh, I would add somebody from, from somebody knows some uh, some country from Central Asia because this this is my my emotional area. I just came back from uh, Central Asia. I was in the heartland last week. I was crossing across. I was crossing Uzbekistan, Samarkand, Bukhara again. This is something that I I do now every year to keep up what's going on in Uzbekistan and by extension uh, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, and Kazakhstan as well. I would add Kazakhstan because this would be a way to discipline several forces inside Kazakhstan that are Atlanticist um, weaponized, to put it bluntly, and trying to destabilize Kazakhstan from within, just like the coup that we have in the beginning of last year against Tokayev, which if it was not Putin and DCSTO, Tokayev would bite the dust at the time. So he owes Putin and the STO a huge favor. At the same time, he's under enormous pressure by the Americans. Americans are very much present in Kazakhstan, much more than in the other stands. So bringing Kazakhstan to BRICS would be, a, in fact, would be another trifecta. Kazakhstan is a member of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization already. Kazakhstan is a member of the Eurasian Economic Union. So Kazakhstan as a member of BRICS 11 or BRICS 20 next year makes total sense. So let's hope for Central Asia coming into uh, BRICS 11 or, or BRICS 15 or BRICS 20 in 2024. Thank you so much. I actually very much agree as a Russian with uh, European Union and Kazakhstan. I feel like that would be a very natural fit. And thank you so much for finding the time for us. We always appreciate you. Come and on, you know, guys, you're the best. I wish I could stay longer. Seriously. Oh, we'll no, do it you're... again. You, you still owe us the Brazil episode. Don't forget. You still owe yes, us. Yes, and I owe you guys the Brazil. Uh, when, when this uh, uh, summit craze uh, disappears, maybe by late September or earlier. I know October, there's another summit craze because there's the Belt and Road. <laughs> There's the Belt and Road thing in Beijing. Okay, by October, I promise you guys, we do a Brazil special, all right? <laughs> okay, <laughs> that sounds sounds really good. Yes. Okay, thank nice. you, guys. You're, you're the best. You. you rock. You're keep, the best. Keep rocking. Keep rocking. <laughs> Cheers. And, and you. Bye-bye. Cheers. Bye-bye. This was another episode of the DD Geopolitics podcast. We're, we're very happy to have you. And don't forget to follow us on all of our platforms. Uh, follow us on Telegram, on Twitter and X and whatever else it's called these days. And support us on Substack. Read our articles. We put a lot of work into them, just like into everything that we do. And thank you again for listening. Thank you.